It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. I just came back from a trip. I actually have taken technically two trips together, but I've been to multiple places. This is a time that I've been anticipating for a while, and it feels like a big deal because these trips were actually the reason that I decided to get vaccinated. I wanted to protect myself, and I have to say, in hindsight, I'm really glad that I did that because it felt almost like, quote, normal life again. Being like around people and going places and not wearing a mask was in a way refreshing. Although I'm at this point now and things keep changing in the world, like I wouldn't be surprised if we're required to wear masks again. I'm starting to hear that. So part of me hopes <laughs> that I didn't inadvertently expose myself to COVID and get a little too trusting. But anyways, that's not my point. My point is, is that I went on two trips and had a really lovely time. One of the trips was with my sister. One of the trips was for business, but I also got to see our friends, Tony and Michelle, authors of this book, The Friendly Vegan Cookbook. Tony has a few other books. I think this is Michelle's only book. Amazing book, amazing people. We got our nails done together. We went to this eco-friendly place that has vegan natural nail polish. I haven't had a manicure and pedicure in who knows how long. And we hung out and went shopping, re-recorded a video, which I don't know when that's coming out, but it'll be on, I think, the World of Vegan YouTube channel. And we just taste tested a bunch of foods, which is fun. And a side note about food that I've been back on the keto diet for myself for the past week. And I I'm really excited about doing it again. I started experimenting with vegan keto about three years ago. I think it was either in July or August 2018. And it made me feel so good that I ended up writing a book about it, the Vegan Ketogenic Diet Cookbook. And then actually when the book came out in February 2020, I was like working my way towards not eating keto. And I have to say that I've noticed a drastic difference, Jason. I feel a lot better. And as I've been exploring my brain and learning more about it, I'm actually getting evaluated for ADHD this coming week, and I will definitely report back on that. I've been thinking a lot about how to support myself and whether or not I would be open to taking medication. And one thing I was curious about is because one of the huge benefits of the ketogenic diet, which is a low-carb, moderate-protein, high-fat diet, there's a lot of research about the benefits for the brain. In fact, one of my favorite books about it by Dr. Mercola, he has this great book called Fat for Fuel that was one of the best that I read. It came out in 2017, so a little, a little bit before I started the keto diet. And when I read that, I was really amazed at all the research that he's been doing because keto can get a bad rap. And by the way, this episode is not about keto. This is like setting the stage for a number of things I want to share today. 
but this is worth mentioning as a personal aside. This book really gets into the metabolic benefits of a low-carb, high-fat diet. And I am now curious, Jason, whether there are benefits for somebody like me that has trouble focusing and I struggle, as many people do, I think, about with dopamine. And that's actually part of what I want to talk about today. And I've just been reflecting a lot on how my brain works and how other people's brains work. And as I was driving up to Northern California, where I went, I went to Sacramento to see Tony and Michelle. And then I went to Napa to speak at a conference. I was listening to a phenomenal book called Stealing Fire. And I'll share a little bit about that in this episode and perhaps more later in another episode. But it got me thinking about my brain and about things like Adderall and Ritalin, which could possibly be prescribed to me if I do, in fact, get diagnosed with ADHD. And I have been thinking like, well, would I want to take those if it's recommended to me by the psychiatrist? I feel open to it, but I don't really have much knowledge. One thing I'd like to dive into more is like, what are the side effects? Are there long-term elements that I should be considered? Because generally I avoid drugs and even vaccines for the most part, because I feel like I don't really need them. I generally do not put something in my body unless I feel like I either A, really want it or B, I really need it. So I'm curious, are there dietary changes I can make to support my brain? And Jason, I hadn't thought about this in a while, but I remember when I did the keto diet, when I first started, I had a lot more energy and that's one of the big benefits of it. In addition to weight loss, which is like, to me, just certainly one of the reasons I've decided, I've mentioned that I put on some weight during COVID as a lot of people did. I feel uncomfortable in my body. And generally speaking, I was eating so much processed food and I was eating a lot of foods that inflamed my body. What I found in my experiences with keto is it brought down my inflammation. So a lot of the perceived weight that I gained was actually my body just kind of being more bloated and like puffy. That's because I have a lot of food sensitivities, I believe. So anyways, I'm curious not just how keto can affect the way I look and how the way I feel physically, but my energy has felt really low recently and my brain function has not been optimal. And through studying the work of Dr. Mercola, for example, he really gets into all of the brain health benefits of a low-carb diet or high-fat because many people have found that high-fat diets are really beneficial to the brain. So now I'm wondering, whoa, like what if actually part of the reason I feel good when I eat a high-fat diet is because I struggle with some of these brain-related challenges? So I looked it up. I found like a few articles. There's some anecdotal evidence, but apparently there hasn't been a ton of study or research done on whether a keto diet is good for ADHD. And some of the research I found was mainly done on children because ADHD tends to be something that we think about for kids. Like that tends to be when people get diagnosed. But it came up in the Stealing Fire book, Jason, I think. I listened to two audiobooks on my road trip. The other one is really great. It's called Bored and Brilliant. And I will link to these books, my book, Tony and Michelle's book, Mercola's book. I've already mentioned like five books so far, the first seven minutes of the show. 
We will link to these at wellevator.com, our website, which is W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. If you click on the podcast section, there's a full transcript. There's a YouTube video if you're not already watching it. And there are links to every single resource, product, whatever we mention here today. So I will link to all of those books. And one of them that I read, either Stealing Fire or Bored and Brilliant, which are both fantastic books for their own reasons... One of them mentioned a man that had been actually discovered that he had adult onset ADHD, Jason, which is really fascinating. I'm very ignorant about that. I haven't heard that term. I thought that some adults like myself can be diagnosed with it later in life because it was never looked at before. But some people believe that it comes on later in life. And so that's an interesting part of this puzzle too, is like, If I do, in fact, once I get evaluated, right, I'll have more information. But if I do, in fact, have ADHD, is this something that I've always had? Or is this something that came on later in life? Is this something that got triggered by part of my adult life? Like all of these things are big mystery and fascinating to me. And they've led me to just examine my behavior and my eating style and just so much. And it's simultaneously overwhelming and exciting as I'm sure, Jason, you can relate to as you go figuring out your own mental health. Do you feel that way? Like simultaneously overwhelmed, but like kind of excited, like you're doing detective work? I don't know if excited is the right way to characterize it. Having my curiosity satisfied is probably more of an accurate assessment of how I feel about it. Yeah. Overwhelmed, confused, and then having my curiosity satisfied because I think for me and probably for you too, Whitney, it's it seems like just one big experiment where we're trying different things and assessing how they're working for us. So I don't know that I would characterize it <laughs> by excitement more than like, oh, okay, that experiment worked or that experiment failed. I don't know. Maybe I'm going about it in a much more clinical way. Well, you know, it is a big exploration and I consume so much information. Sometimes I don't process it out loud as much. That's actually one of the big benefits of the podcast is to share the thoughts. And I find that as I have conversations that really helps me process. So I think this is one of the major reasons that I enjoy having a podcast is like talking about things helps me better understand them. And if I don't talk about them and I just consume the information, then it just like fades away over time. And that really leads me to this interesting experience I had, I spoke at an event and I crafted my talks. I did two talks, but my very first one, I crafted inspired by a lot of the things I'm talking about today, which is my big passion right now, not just for myself, but to help others is to support our weaknesses so we can better thrive. And that's actually what that book, Bored and Brilliant, is about. We mentioned this in a recent podcast, Jason, when I was, let's see, there was an excerpt of that book that I read. It was something related to technology. I have to pull it up and see what, what that, remind myself what exactly it was in that book. But I know it was a little section in the book is basically encouraging people to be off their devices more, as we've talked about a lot on the show recently, but specifically about how boredom can lead to brilliance and how many of us are uncomfortable being bored. And the book is so research heavy, but it's also based on her experiences running a challenge called Bored and Brilliant. And it was so successful 
that she wrote this book about it and backed it up with all this data and just really dug into like the history of boredom and like how right now we avoid boredom and how boredom feels uncomfortable. And then boredom seems like such a negative thing, but she's explaining how boredom is actually very important and great thing for us. And I love that. So my fascination with our human behavior often comes up, not just on the show, but in a lot of my work. I I find this as a coach when I do specifically social media coaching, but well-being coaching, absolutely. It comes up in our courses. It comes up in my presentation. So I noticed when I went to this event that I spoke at, before I spoke, I was sitting in the audience and so many attendees there were on devices. And here I was, I actually hadn't started Bored and Brilliant yet. I was almost done with Stealing Fire. And I was just immersed in this book. And Stealing Fire for Context is about altered states and ecstasy and how human beings are often drawn to changing their state so that they can feel more pleasure or they can better understand themselves for religious reasons, for spiritual reasons. And it's just a phenomenal book if you're interested in all of those. And it touches upon things like Adderall and Ritalin and that effect on us. It touches upon psychedelic drugs and alcohol and sex and dancing and like all of these different facets of our life in which we seek out pleasure. And we are trying to change our state so we can feel better or somehow we can tap into a deeper side of us. I mean, as I was listening to it, Jason, I'm like, not only does this sound like things that I seek out all the time, but gosh, like the number of people that I've met over the years that are into this. Jason, I haven't told you this, but there's a lot of talk about Burning Man. And it helped me understand Burning Man and like a level I had never thought of it before. But I didn't realize how Burning Man deeply transforms people. Like I always thought it was like a place that you would go just to like have a good time for a week and escape reality. But I didn't realize that people use it to get to alter their consciousness on like a semi-permanent level. And a lot of people in the technology space, including Elon Musk, have gone and have encouraged their teams to go to like transform the way that they do business and think differently. And Google, for example, has a foundation there. And I'm just like, whoa, now I wish that I had gone earlier, but now I'm extra curious about it. Anyways, that's a side note. So here I am like immersed in this book, thinking about the brain, thinking about consciousness, thinking about our desire for pleasure and aware because of so much of the research that I do, how technology interrupts us more than it supports us. Technology I'm specifically talking about computers and phones and our devices that we use to connect to one another and get information. It's beautiful. They're very convenient. But I think we, as human beings, because we don't have a ton of self-awareness, or and I'm generally speaking, it's hard to have self-awareness because these devices and the software on them that we use has been crafted to manipulate us basically. And sometimes on a level to get us to have good behavior and sometimes on a level to encourage quote bad behavior so that we will do something that benefits somebody else, right? And oftentimes it's financial 
driven. So how long can you stay in an app so that the app can show you advertisements so that the app will make more money? I mean, we know this about social media. What can we do to manipulate you into buying something? Like if you've ever downloaded a freemium app and it's free, but there's like extra levels that you can unlock if you pay for it. I'm using several of those right now and they're really great on the free level and they'll continuously advertise like, hey, if you just spend $3, you'll get this feature. Hey, if you sign up for a monthly membership service, you'll get that feature. And it's like, I don't even really know if I want it, but sometimes the advertisements are so good at tapping into our desires and our needs and just basically manipulating us. And I'm fascinated by how that works because A, I want to feel like I'm mostly in control of my life. (laughs) You know, like when I study things like this, I'm like, wow, like how much am I driven to do things I don't even recognize that I'm being manipulated to do? Does that make sense? Even this podcast, right? Like I'm sitting here talking about this. I'm using a webcam and a computer. I've got my phone next to me. Like we're using technology to communicate to each other, me and Jason, to communicate to you, the listener. And I'll get on these thought processes where I'm like, wow, like why am I doing the podcast? Is a podcast for me? Is it for Jason? Is it for the two of us? Is it for the listener? Like, and I'll just start like reflecting and getting deeper. And a lot of the times, Jason, I realize that. I make a lot of decisions out of either like a surface level decision or like it's an unconscious drive and or I should say an unconscious drive to do things. So this is part of my deep curiosity and this comes out a lot in my work. So going back to this conference, I was sitting there observing how many people were using their devices during the talks. Like there are people up on stage the attendees in general, from what I understand, were paid a good amount of money. This is a business conference. They pay this money and they're spending all this time to sit in a room post or not even post COVID within because COVID's still going on. They've probably been vaccinated because no one was wearing masks. I'm, I'm hoping they, <laughs> they were all at least being very safe. And they're making this big decision to be there from multiple levels for their health, for their time, for their money. To me, those are all very important factors. So if you're going to do anything that involves that, then you should take it seriously. And I think people, when they go to conferences, intend on that, Jason. When somebody goes to an event, a lot of times they're driven by socializing. But if you're going to sit down and listen to a speaker deep down, you have a desire to reach some sort of goal. So for me, when I'm speaking on stage or even when I'm coaching one-on-one or in a group setting, I am like committed and like almost obsessed about getting somebody an outcome. I feel like a failure if I don't get somebody an outcome, right? If I'm going to set an expectation, I'm going to do my very best everything I'm capable of to get them that outcome. Now, there's a certain point in which they have to take the responsibility, right? But when you're teaching somebody, you have a responsibility, I believe. Do you agree, Jason? Do you feel that when you're teaching, coaching, speaking? 
I think the only responsibility I feel is to do the best job I can to communicate what I feel is going to be of benefit to them. The outcome isn't up to me. And I think this is a tricky thing because in the coaching world and all of that, you know, there's a lot of promises of like, I'll 10x your income and I'll get you, you know, 10,000 new subscribers. And I think it's a slippery slope. I think the only responsibility we have is to speak truth and to give as much value and support as we can. For me, the idea of outcome or focusing on, on outcomes is dubious and I don't personally like to focus on it anymore. I see what you're saying there. I guess to be clear, I know that the outcome that students or listeners, including the people who listen to our podcast, is out of my hands. But I also believe that there is a way in which we can guide them to our best abilities to the outcome they're hoping for. And then they have to take the steps from there. It's like leading someone to a path. And actually, it's a good metaphor because I'm fascinated in general with structure. Complete side note, I promise I'll come back. This is the second time this has happened that I looked out my window during podcasting and somebody is writing a message in the sky with, you know, an airplane. Like, what are the chances that this happens twice while we're recording? And I it's only like the second time I've seen someone do this. There's just a capital D. It's either lowercase D or like a musical note. We'll find out. I'll keep you guys posted and hope it doesn't get us off track. Anyways, speaking of which, right, structure. I know that saying something like that throws people off, right? But sometimes it's okay to throw people off. When I present, generally I don't unless I have a really strong point. So my major point here is that I'm at this conference and I'm thinking about how I can best support the audience because that's what I love to do. I want to get to know people. I want to see where they're struggling. I want to see what they're challenged with. And I want to do my best to help them so that they can leave feeling empowered. Like I feel like that's a huge part of my role is like speakers are there to inspire you, to entertain you sometimes, to educate you in most cases. And I know what it's like to see someone and be fully drawn into what they're saying and then leave feeling just like on fire and ready to do something. That's usually why I go to a talk. When I'm at a conference, I will look at the agenda and I will say, all right, this piques my interest because I want to get XYZ outcome and I think that this person could help me. Right? Just like somebody would sign up for a course or whatever. Pause. The uh, sky writing has continued and it now looks like it's an upside down R. Last time this happened, it was all over Twitter and TikTok. Like by the end of the day, I also know that social media will support me in figuring this. (laughs) (laughs) this out. All right. So I observe the audience and I think, how can I support them? Well, after listening to that book, Stealing Fire, thinking about technology a lot, thinking about social media, thinking about how easily distracted we are these days, what I wanted to do is to help them focus. So I set up focus music. We talked about in a recent episode about, I forget the exact type, but it's kind of along the lines of binaural beats and it's designs that when you listen to it, it impacts, it stimulates your brain. So I had that music playing very subtly during my whole talk, which to me like brings me excitement. One thing I actually developed alongside Jason a few years ago is after reading some books about TED Talks, 
it was recommended that you have a sensory experience for people. If you can tap into as many senses as possible, people will be very engaged and stimulated and they will also have a better chance of remembering what you said, especially if they're using their devices. So Jason and I did a talk and we actually centered it around all senses. So we passed out like chocolates or something. What do we do for the taste, Jason? Was it chocolate? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we did chocolate for the taste portion of it. And then I think you also did essential oils. And then you did like textured stones for them to do for the touch portion. Yes. And then, of course, we had the visuals of us speaking and then the sound. Oh, we played music, too. We did like a little meditation, right? I would have loved to do that. But there were at least 100 people in the audience, which is awesome, but a lot of people. And I didn't like plan far enough in advance to like kind of do those things. But I think it's awesome because not only does it help people pay attention, but it makes people feel cared for. And I recognize that that's something else that I enjoy is like, in general, when I'm socializing, especially these days, when we haven't socialized in such a long time, most of us, again, generally speaking, I personally had not done anything like that. I hadn't been around that many people in so long. It feels good to feel cared for and experience human connection. And I think a lot of the times people just go through the motions and speakers make it about them sometimes. They're on stage to get your attention and validation. They're on stage to like share what they know, but they're not tuned into how it's making people feel. For better or for worse, I'm deeply empathetic and I'm always concerned with how people feel. So I got up there and crafted my entire talk around that. And I encouraged the audience to not use their devices. And I wasn't sure how that was going to go. Also, Jason, in that same talk that we did about the senses, which wasn't actually about the senses, it was about like well-being or social media. I think it was just well-being. And we were talking about how well-being tied into business. We had like a small group of people, it was like 10 people. And we asked all of them to be off their devices so that they could you know, focus on their well-being. And one guy got so upset when we asked him to do that, that he walked out of the room. How did you feel in that moment, Jason? To be honest, I was like, fuck him. You don't want to be here? Don't be here. We put a lot of work into this. We put a lot of... like. My attitude in the moment was like, okay, bye. To be quite honest, it didn't emotionally affect me because I had no investment in him as a person and his attitude in general was kind of like detached and aloof. I remember, you know, during the course of that whole weekend experience, my perception of him was that he was just kind of like in this mode of like, I'm seeing his face now too. And I just recall my impression of him throughout that weekend was just kind of like, yeah, I'm just kind of like a tough guy who knows it all. He just had sort of this aura about him. So when he left the room, I'm like, fuck off. I don't want you here anyway. It's so funny how different we are because I started crying in the middle of our presentation. I was actually not like in an uncontrolled way, but I was using my feelings as an example of vulnerability. And that's part of actually another tactic for presentations and, and not a tactic in like a manipulation way. So technically, but like a connection tactic, right? Is when you show that you're vulnerable, people lean in. And so I remember I thought, okay, I have an opportunity here to hide my feelings, suck it up, 
and pretend I don't feel that way. Or I could share with the audience that I'm feeling emotionally impacted by somebody. And acknowledging that is actually a key thing. This is something else you can do. If you are nervous about public speaking, it's recommended that you say so. And what happens is the audience feels empathy for you and that creates a deeper connection and actually can make a bigger impact and they will pay more attention to you. Basically, if you're feeling something, you don't need to hide it when you're on stage. A lot of people have this perception that they have to pretend to be otherwise. I don't believe in that. So anyways, in that talk with Jason, I like teared up after that guy left the room and I thought it was important to acknowledge it. But once we acknowledge it, we could move on from it. And that there wasn't like the elephant hanging in the room. In my talk this past week, I thought to myself ahead of time, like, okay, it's very common during conferences when people leave the room. I was like prepping myself mentally, like, okay, like I'm not going to get offended if people leave the room. And a few people did. And I remember thinking to myself, gosh, I just wish I could know. Did they leave the room because of me and my talk or did they leave the room for some other reason? Like, should I take this personally or not? And technically, you know, it's not beneficial to take it personally, but I thrive on feedback. And I've also noticed over the years as I've started adding in these more untraditional ways of presenting, I don't really know how people feel. And sometimes people, I feel like they're like surprised at it, right? Like I'm that outlier who will add in like some more interaction and some more connection. And like, there's like a deeper sense to this, Jason. And I'm doing that. And my aim was like, I want to help these people focus because these people are at this conference spending all this money and they're drawn to their devices because many of us have that habit. We're looking for dopamine. This is one of the main reasons that I've heard in my research that people use devices. We're either uncomfortable. So let's say you walk into a party and like you don't know anyone there. It's very tempting to go to your phone because you can tap out. It's like you're almost like we're using them like they're transportation devices or um, teleportation is what I meant to say. Like we're like, oh my gosh, I'm uncomfortable. I'm going to teleport to someplace that's more comfortable. I'm going to go into my zone. I'm going to create this protective bubble around me because when I'm on my phone, there's a less chance someone's going to come talk to me, right? But if we ask ourselves, why do we go to an event in the first place? Generally, we're not going there to be on our devices. We're going there to learn. We're going there to network, to connect. So I feel a responsibility or I've chosen to feel a responsibility as a presenter to remind people of that, but do it in a subtle way. So I crafted my presentation. I asked people like, hey, did you know that you'll process the information more if you're off your device? And in fact, you have a pad of paper here where you can write down notes instead of on a device and that'll help you retain memory. And when I said that, I noticed all these people putting their devices away. Now, some of them may have done it because they felt obligated, but I think a lot of people, it was like a cue, like, hey, over here, you know? And then I engaged the audience by asking them questions, not just for me, but for them. I wanted to know more about them because in an ideal world, I probably would have done a poll. Like if I were teaching a group, I would ask them a question before they got there because I want to know who they are. I'd I'd like do some research because it's not fun for me when I'm teaching something and then I find out afterwards that the audience already knew it. (laughs) Like I'm like, I just wasted both of our time. 
But if I can teach you something new, and if I can give you something that you're looking for, then I feel like, great. So I'm engaging the audience, having them raise their hand, find out more about them, getting them physically engaged. I did like an exercise, like all of these things that I've been trying out over the years and studying. But yet, Jason, surprisingly, after how much this stuff comes up in research, time and time again, all these books and articles I read, it's coming out more in documentaries, like mindfulness in general. We've got that app Headspace has a Netflix show, multiple Netflix shows now. Like meditation and mindfulness are no longer like these weird things that some people do, right? Like, and this is also covered in in Stealing Fire. In fact, the other big takeaway I got from Stealing Fire is how meditation ultimately is one of, if not the most powerful way to change your state of mind without using anything else. In that book, the author shares all of these different ways that you can heighten your awareness and your consciousness and escape and have pleasure. But ultimately, what most of us are seeking is to get better in tune and to feel more peace and clarity. And all of that can be achieved through meditation. And in that book also, it is talked about over and over again how these big CEOs are using tools like meditation and companies now are creating meditation rooms. Companies are now experimenting with different ways to support the well-being of their team members. This came up in Bored and Brilliant too. The author was talking about how Jeff Bezos, like him or not, at some point during his time at Amazon, he would start every meeting I believe it was him, might've been someone else, but I know for sure there's a part with Jeff Bezos. He or someone, another big CEO would start their meeting with 30 minutes of silence. And I believe it was Jeff Bezos because he would also give all the attendees of the meeting a six page or so outline of what was going to be covered and everybody would read it in silence. So they had a chant, tune into themselves, tune into the meeting and also review what was going to be discussed so that then they could already have a framework for it and be better participants and waste less time in the meeting, right? So both books I read on my trip were all about how beneficial these mindfulness practices are. And all this to say that I do this talk, I felt pretty good about it, I got off stage and I got feedback that... It wasn't very well received. I don't know how many people gave that feedback. I don't know exactly the context in which it wasn't well received. So that was really tough for me. A, it it sucks when you pour your heart and mind into something. I mean, not only did I spend a ton of time just writing the presentation and designing it and all that, but like the mental space that it took up in my brain for months because I've known how long I've been going to talk there. And like every time I would think of something, like it was just a lot of time and energy that I put into this. It's And this has been the case for a lot of my work where you put a lot into something and then it flops or it fails or people don't like it. Or maybe people do like it, but they don't tell you. And only the people that don't like it are the ones that tell you. This came up as well. I was actually talking to Michelle 
Kane, who wrote this book, The Friendly Vegan Cookbook with Tony, how often the three of us and the four of us too, Jason talks to them frequently as well, will get negative feedback. Tony has talked about it on this podcast if you haven't listened to it yet. By the way, Tony and Michelle were in an episode together, which we'll link to in our show notes at wellevator.com. But Tony was in an episode all on her own. And one of the things that we discussed is how challenging it is to get criticism, even when it's constructive criticism, it's still really tough. And that's what I got. I mean, the feedback I got was meant to be constructive. And it was framed in, well, the way that you structured your talk, Whitney, does not work for this crowd. And at the time, I felt shocked. And I wasn't quite aware at that moment why I felt shocked. I felt hurt. I felt sad. My ego was bruised, you know? I felt invalidated. I felt embarrassed. And I felt ashamed because, as I've shared, I really wanted to do a great job. I really wanted to help people. I wanted it to land. And It never feels good when you put on a performance or you create something and despite your best efforts, it wasn't well-received. Now, that also leads me to this thought that I have that I can't confirm or deny that I wonder in general, because there was no way of asking every single person that was there listening to my talk, I don't know what the percentage was because sometimes the complainers and the criticism is the loudest. But because the praise, if any, did not outweigh the criticism, then the criticism takes the stage. Now, granted, I did receive praise from a number of people that came up to me and said they liked it. So I knew for a fact that it wasn't everybody. But what I wondered, what was the percentage in which it was well-received? And it was fascinating to me in hindsight. Once I moved past the pain, I cried. I went back to my room and sulked for hours and kind of tried not to beat myself up, but I wasn't fully able to do that. My instinct, you know, in those moments is to self blame. But as I reflected more and more on it, Jason, I came back to a sense of self and confidence. And realized that I, A, I know I did the best I could. B, I spent a lot of time on it. And C, this is not my first time presenting. This is not my first time covering the subject matter. This is something I've talked about for a long time, many years. And that's part of why I was shocked by that feedback because I felt like, wow, that was so outside of my realm of possibility because I felt confident. And it's fascinating when your confidence is rocked. It kind of reminded me, Jason, of online dating where you'll maybe do your best. It's actually not just online dating. It's dating in general, which many of us, the two of us for sure have experienced. We're like, you go on a date and it doesn't go well. And you're like, wow, I don't know why it didn't go well. I mean, I imagine, Jason, like you've been really into a girl and you're doing your very best and you think everything's great. And then she's like, yeah, I wasn't into you. And it's that moment of, I did the best that I could. And I was rejected, basically. I mean, that's at the core what it felt like. Does that make sense? One of the big undoings as adults we have to do is thinking that everything we do is going to be successful and everything that we do is praiseworthy. 
I've been thinking a lot about this actually, that our response to criticism or failure or doing our best and falling short, I think is compounded and made more difficult by the fact that many of us were really, really coddled as children and told that we were amazing and everything we do is incredible. And it's a fine line, right? Because I think talking positively to children and positive creative reinforcement, I think that positive talk to children and positive reinforcement creatively, I think is a positive thing. But I do wonder cognitively if overinflating a child's sense of how good they are at something. You know, like I remember as a kid writing papers and doing art projects, right? And bringing them home to my mom. And I remember getting a certain amount of like, oh, this is wonderful, baby. This is so great. Blah, 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 blah. You know, but it's relative, right? It's like, I don't know the point I'm trying to make. I'm exhausted and my brain isn't working well in this moment. But I think the point I'm trying to make is like, I think there's a downside to self-praise and there's a downside to that kind of positive feedback. Whereas if we believe everything we do is a golden fucking turd, then when we grow up, we think everything we're going to do is a golden fucking turd. And then we realize that as adults, the world doesn't fucking care about you. The world is not going to give the praise that your doting parents gave upon you for doing shitty work. Like, I know I'm sounding a little bit hardcore right now because I'm in a hardcore kind of mood. But it's true, right? And we get to adults and we think, because we've been patterned, that everything we do is amazing. Because we were told as kids, everything we do is amazing. But then we realize it's really not true. And a lot of the things that we do, if we have the courage to pursue it, are going to suck. And we're going to fall short. And we're going to fail. And we're going to learn. And maybe we're going to give up. And maybe we're going to try again. But the downside in all this, I think, Wit, is like, I don't know. I don't know if praise does more damage than good in more children. I probably need to research this, but I think my point is that sometimes I, because I think I got too much praise as a kid, that my capacity to receive criticism and my capacity to like assess my own work is a bit flawed as a result of that. And it's a very relatable thing. It's an interesting element of this, you know, and it's easy to reflect on now. <laughs> In the moment, it did not feel good. I'm grateful that I moved through it because this was, you know, less than 48 hours ago, which is also kind of nuts. Timeline can go so fast and so slow at the same time. By the way, the sky writing above me disappeared. It was like letters like R plus S equals. And then I wasn't paying attention to what it equals, but it kind of looks like a heart. I don't know. For anyone who was curious what happened in the sky, there's your update. Wasn't that exciting? But maybe you'll see it on Twitter or TikTok. I don't know. Reflecting on this, is it a need? I mean, this is actually what I thought when I came off stage after that presentation. I did two presentations. The first one is the one I've been referencing. And when I came off stage, Jason, I remembered it felt weird because I didn't get immediate praise. And I thought to myself, does that mean that I didn't do a great job? It doesn't mean that it did, just didn't land. Or was it my ego wanting that quick fix of validation? To your point, like we become very addicted to feedback, praise, validation, all these things and fearful of rejection. And I felt vulnerable. And now in hindsight, I'm like, wow, perhaps I had a sense that that was the case. Perhaps I knew on a deep energetic level that it wasn't fully well-received. I think it was interesting too, like also in hindsight, I remember that certain people seemed to resonate. 
And certain people kind of had this look on their face that I couldn't quite understand. And now I'm like, oh, maybe those are the people I didn't land with. They were just confused or they wasn't what they expected. And that was the other thing. Like sometimes people are not happy because we don't give them or we don't do what they expected. That can be part of all of this too. So another big lesson here, Jason, is like we just don't have that much control. And if we can keep that in mind during these moments, like truly what we can do is be the best and do the best that we know how in that moment. And in hindsight, I know that I did that. So in a sense, I accomplished it. I also thought, and one of my friends pointed this out when I talked to them afterwards when I was processing this, it was pointed out how this is... I actually think you said this to me too, but so multiple people said this to me. It's like, what a great lesson to receive. What a great experience. What a great opportunity to grow as a speaker. And that's really important. One thing I actually thought with you, Jason, that I'm curious about, I'm sure you've gone through this, but I'd love to hear you verbalize it, is there was a moment, I think it was the next day as I was getting ready for my second presentation, which side note, my second presentation was very well received. So there's a positive side to the story. The second presentation went over great. So in a way, perhaps my perceived failure of the first presentation aided me in doing a better job in the second one. So there's a silver lining for sure. There are many silver linings to this. But I think it was when I was getting ready for that second presentation, I was feeling a bit defeated. I was feeling like, you know what? I'm just going to go through the motions. Like I was less emotionally connected and, and certainly less excited about doing my second presentation. I felt a little at times like a dog with my tail between my legs, but enough time had passed that I had moved through a lot of that. And I just like was stepping onto stage with a little less confidence and a little less excitement. My question to you, Jason, is how you can relate to this and how you've processed those moments in which you wonder, should I be doing this anymore? Do I want to be doing this anymore? Because this kind of (laughs) sucks. Like I, I was like, wow, I had gone into that event feeling like, I want to do more public speaking. Now that things are opening back up, I want to put myself out there. I want to like invest more effort into public speaking because I love it. And then when that perceived failure happened, I thought, ooh, do I love this? Or am I okay with this possibility? Because it's not the only time it's flopped. As I mentioned, Jason and I had that really uncomfortable moment when the man walked out of our event because we asked him to turn off his phone. We've had tons of flops. I mean, public speaking can... I mean, remember that time also, Jason, where we got pulled off the stage? (laughs) It was like that cartoon uh, cliche, which is more from like the old days of cartoons, like a Bugs Bunny cartoon or something where they would take... Not a cane. I don't know. what, What was that called? No, it was a cane. And they just whoop. But it was like a hook. That would go yeah, around but- your neck, right? And they would like pull... It was a cart... I don't know if did they actually ever do this or the cartoons made it up. I don't know. I think the cartoons made it up. But, but you remember yeah. that vividly when we got... Basically, that happened to us. Well, their version of the hook was to start the music over us talking. <laughs> like the Oscars. 
That was so bizarre. Granted, that was a very low stakes event. The event that I just spoke at felt more high stakes. I was being paid for it. It was a business conference. I was in front of CEOs and all that. So my long-winded question to you, Jason, is like, A, do you have an experience where you're like, I don't know if I can be a public speaker. I'm awful at this. Or perhaps it was, it's similar, I'm sure, to stand-up. You know, like I know you had experiences. You were really excited about doing stand-up comedy. And there was at least that one time, you know what I'm, I'm talking about, where it didn't go so well. So do you want to share any of those experiences? And then how did you feel after they didn't go well? Yeah, it's hard. It's hard because you bring what you perceive as your A game. You bring your excitement. You bring your passion. You bring your heart, your research. And, you know, part of it is our own doing, in my experience, in the sense that if I have even a subconscious expectation that I'm going to just slay every single time, it's not realistic. I mean, if you talk to any legendary speaker, legendary stand-up comic, they will tell you about the times they've bombed, many times they've bombed, right? And so I think defeating the expectation that we're going to be well-received and celebrated and just be on our A-game, even if we perceive that we're bringing our A-game, it's what I go back to at the beginning of this episode, which is we can't control the outcome. I mean, it's a bit odd too, because sometimes I will bring the same presentation, the same speech, the same stand-up set, same inflection, damn near similar energy, same delivery, hitting the same high notes, if you will, you know, accentuating certain things that I've seen work and seen get an emotional reaction in the past. All those variables are the same, or at least very similar. I mean, of course, there's nuances, but then you see it bomb and you're like, what the fuck just happened? I did the same thing that I did to a room full of whatever, you know, hundreds of people. I think the biggest crowd I spoke was like 2000 people at one time. And you're thinking, the fuck just, ha- I don't understand. You know, that's the confusing part, again, as sort of an aspect of being a life experimentalist is you wonder like, well, what's the variable here? The audience is the variable. If my energy is on that same high level, I've rehearsed this, I've practiced it, it's dialed. Then the variable is we can't affect everyone. There are people who will listen to our message, listen to our perspective, listen to our story, our whatever it is, our vulnerabilities, and they'll be like, shrug. We can't control it. It's maddening though, right? Because I think if our heart's in it, we do want to go back to your point, Whitney, affect people in a lasting and meaningful way. Give them something that maybe is going to affect their life for the better in some positive, substantial way. But the reality is some people might look at us and we remind them of like their cousin Ted or someone they hated in high school, and then they just shut down, right? Or maybe it's the timbre of our voice, or maybe it's the clothes we're wearing, or they don't like the way something looks. I mean, if you think about human beings, we're an incredibly judgmental species that makes snap judgments about people in a heartbeat. So rather than for me, at least trying to control how other people perceive me, I realize there's a whole variety of factors that I don't know what is going on in that person's brain around how they perceive me right? So again, even if I'm bringing the same energy, the same passion, the same preparation, and it bombs, how the hell can I know? I can't, you can never know. And that's, I think, one of the most challenging things to let go of is realizing that there are some people that just aren't going to care what we have to say. 
for reasons that are out of our control and reasons we may never, ever understand. You know, we're not going to go around to an entire audience and go like, why didn't you like me? Can you tell, you know, was there something about me you didn't like? And even if we do pass out surveys or do exit surveys, like you were saying in, in the case of this conference, not everyone's going to fill it out. And so again, in that case, results can be skewed if the squeaky wheels are like, I didn't like her. And like, that's the only feedback you get. Then as I was saying to you when we talked about it, you know, the organizers or the people who put the conference together are going to have a skewed perception of how the audience perceived you if 10 squeaky wheels who didn't like you are the only ones who filled out the survey. So from a data perspective, this is a very tricky and non-exacting science we're talking about here. But overall, I want to go back to like my emotional response because you asked. It's hard, right? It's hard when you put that much work and effort and love and passion and bomb. I think if anyone who's like just shrugs it off, I wonder about like, you know, are you a cyborg? Are you a robot? Do you not care? It's tough. It's also tough. Here's another aspect too. And I hate this. And I don't use the word hate a lot, but I truly despise this is when I'll be backstage or kind of off to the side if there's no backstage. I mean, a lot of these things, there is no backstage. It's sort of like a side curtain. Like, just go behind the side curtain and we'll introduce you when you're ready. Or not even. You're just off to the side of the stage waiting for the presentation to begin. And you watch people file in. And there's a part of me that's like, oh, God, I hope it's a packed house. I, oh, okay. We're only a quarter full. Okay, there's only like 10 people here. There's only 15. And then you realize like you're in a big ass room and maybe it's only like 10% full or 15. I fucking hate that. I fucking hate it because there's a part of me that expects people should love what I'm doing. Where are you assholes? Don't you know I'm gold? Don't you know who the fuck I am? Like I'm getting so in my ego about it, right? About like I'm bringing you motherfuckers gold dust. I'm shooting gold dust up your ass right now. Where are you? And we're out having a lunch break and we're going at the tonic bar and fucking man, 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 right? Like this is my brain. I'm saying this. This is my ego talking. This is my ego. I'm like, and then I've got to pump myself up to talk to 10 people in a room. Like that's happened. So it's difficult because like if you've done a sold out room, it's like, why isn't this one sold out? God damn it. Why are there only 10 people here? Do you know? And then it's pumping myself up to bring the same energy, bring the same passion, bring the same comedy and verve that I would do to a room of 200 people to a room of 20. That's not easy for me. That's very hard because I get super disappointed when I walk out on stage and I see a mostly empty room. It's crushing, but I'm there to do a job and I've got to suck it up and put the ego aside and say, can I bring the same love, the same energy, the same passion, the same impact to this tiny handful of people? That is so hard for me. It's still to this day, it's so hard. Oh, yeah. I mean, every time. And it gives me a lot of compassion for speakers. But I also felt and noticed myself, Jason, I got distracted too when there are speakers. I thought, okay, I'm going to be really kind and I'm going to make eye contact with them. But then I started seeking out the dopamine. Let me check my email just in case there's a new email. Let me see if I can get a hit of dopamine. Let me see if I can get a hit from a text. Ooh, I'm trying to multitask and I can do it, which is not really true. So I'll just go do this. Or you know what? I'm hungry. I'm going to leave the room. Ooh, I'm bored. I'm going to go do something else. Like all of those things. And that was exactly why I crafted my presentation to engage people so that they would hopefully stay because they were feeling stimulated, because they were present in the moment. And it's like, I know my intentions were there. And perhaps to your point, Jason, it didn't resonate with that crowd. 
But it's important for me to hope, at least, that just because it doesn't resonate with them doesn't mean that it won't resonate with another. And this is why I brought up dating is because it's not you most of the time. It's the other person. So if someone rejects you, do you need to change who you are? And that's, I think, one of the big questions of all of this is what do you do when you really love something, when you really want something, when you've chosen something and you're rejected and not just rejected once, but a few times, do you keep going or do you change? And at this point in my life, I think it's actually important to keep going. I think this is why it is of the utmost importance to have self-awareness about who you are, what you love, what your goals are. When you have that and you remind yourself of that, then that is gives you the resilience to move through this. And this is ultimately where I'm at today after this experience. It's less than 48 hours and I am now feeling confident again. I started feeling confident again later in the evening. I started feeling confident again a day afterwards. I started feeling confident again when I talked to people like you, Jason, and thank you for being there for me and and my other friends who I'll keep their names private. But it also was fascinating to me because as I expressed to you, Jason, the next day before I did my second presentation, another person took the stage and talked about behavioral science and the impact on marketing. And I was like, oh, I don't think it was a subject matter that bothered people. I think it was that I did it in a, quote, radical way. And sometimes that in itself, to your point, Jason, is what people don't like. This is why we started this podcast. Jason and I are relatively comfortable getting uncomfortable, but a lot of people aren't. And when you do something out of the norm and you do something that's not within their expectations and they feel uncomfortable, it's very common for them to kind of blame it on you. Oh, that person made me uncomfortable. How dare they? But in a way, it's like, that person made me uncomfortable. Thank you. And that's how I feel too after that experience because when we get uncomfortable, we can reflect on it or we can try to run away from this. This is part of the the reason why people want to change their consciousness doing drugs, drinking alcohol, you know, those altered states, again, that are covered in stealing fire. Sometimes it's not to grow as a person. Sometimes we just want to escape. I think that's also the reason that we look in our phones. Like I said earlier, you're at a party, you feel uncomfortable, you want to escape. And sometimes instead of escaping, we blame. And then maybe we go escape. Maybe we use blame as a form of escape, to be honest. Like how far away can we get from something? Perhaps if we blame it on somebody, it takes us out of the equation. And in fact, at this same conference, Jason, there was a man who spoke about complaining. And I took a few notes I'm going to pull up. Uh, His name's Will Bowen, I believe. I'll link to him in the show notes. And he did a wonderful presentation on complaining, which is kind of ironic now because in a way, the people that complained, I mean, I don't know if complain is quite the right word, but they gave the feedback that they didn't like something that I did. Isn't that a form of complaining? And he, let's see, here we go. Okay. He broke down complaints into the word gripe, G-R-I-P-E, I believe. And I didn't write down the last one, but each letter stands for something. And the five reasons people tend to complain. 
One is to get attention. We can do maybe another episode on this, but I'll just share these real quickly. Two, though, is to remove responsibility. So if you complain about something, you take yourself out of the equation. Well, I didn't like what that person said. Isn't it kind of like your fault that you didn't like something? (laughs) But instead you put it on the other person. Well, I didn't like it. I was uncomfortable. I was bored. I was whatever else. Let's put it on someone else. Another letter. So get attention, remove responsibility, inspire action. I mean, inspire envy and power is another one. So sometimes when we complain, we feel more powerful because it's almost like we can put ourselves above someone. This actually reminded me, do you remember Jason? This is kind of like a pop culture moment when Ashley Simpson, sister of Jessica Simpson, she went on SNL And they caught her lip syncing and she didn't know what to do. And she started dancing awkwardly and then went off the stage and they had to end the segment. The media and people in general tore this girl apart. And I remember vaguely feeling pleasure and making fun of her. Right? Like joking about it to friends. Oh my God, did you see Ashley Simpson? Can you believe she did that? Like totally I've been guilty of of acting that way. Well, the other day I saw a clip that I think was recorded fairly recently in which Ashley Simpson was talking about how traumatic that experience was for her, especially as a young woman. I mean, I think she was just probably in her early 20s or maybe she was still a teenager. I don't know exactly, but she was young and she's on a major show, SNL, and screws up and is not only embarrassed, but she's publicly ridiculed and shamed for it. And I mean, No one would blame her if she had completely ended her career after a moment like that. And seeing that, I thought to myself, wow, like, first of all, relatively my experience of any sort of embarrassment or shame is pretty minor in the grand scheme of things. But it was also that opportunity to see, like, to your point earlier, Jason, that so many successful people have gone through really challenging situations of ridicule, of embarrassment, of mistakes. And it's common knowledge that it takes a lot of resilience. And if you have the resilience or find the resilience to move through it, then it doesn't mean that you should give up on it. It means that you just have to move forward. I mean, I think most incredible people that we admire that have done great things have experienced that. And also many people that have gone on to do brilliant things had to face a certain amount of ridicule. I'm not using that as an example in my ego, but I do also feel like I have a tendency to back away from things that don't seem to work, even if I really enjoy doing them. And then I often regret it later. There's been so many times with online content, for example, that I've made and it felt like a flop. And I was like, well, wasn't well received. I guess I'll stop. And then I wonder later on, what would have happened if I hadn't stopped? What would have happened if I had continued doing something that I enjoyed despite the response? And then a few times in those experiences, I've seen other people become successful from something that I gave up on. And I think there's a history of like the first person to do something that seems like, quote, crazy or out of the norm. They tend to be ridiculed, but the second person does it, 
and they're praised and suddenly they're the brilliant one and people don't even remember ridiculing the first person that did it. And those stories make me think, wow, what if I found the courage within myself to keep going with something that I deeply believe in and going back to what I started saying earlier, if you have the confidence and self-awareness that you, and the self-trust really in what you're doing, you have to keep going because you don't know all the variables that can lead to you feeling like a failure when maybe that's not even the reality. It might just be, a, to your point, Jason, a very small percentage of people. And what about all the other people that love what you do? What about all the other people who haven't even discovered what you do yet, but will love it if you keep going? Wouldn't you be doing them a huge disservice if you stopped? It's hard to say. Because I think after a certain point, I've noticed like my tolerance for failure and my tolerance for disappointment, I hit a precipice where I just can't take anymore. And I think that's one reason why I've pretty much completely backed out of my culinary career and people want to talk about it all the time. It's a sensitive subject for me. I'm in a currently working in a consulting role in a new project. And one of the colleagues I've been working with when we kind of digitally met, you know, he sent me a message and said, oh, by the way, I'm a huge fan of your work. Thanks for everything you did. You would think that I would feel good receiving that, but I didn't. I felt awful. I felt awful receiving it. Because I'm not doing that work anymore. And it's like, oh, here you are. You're doing this thing because you failed at that other thing. Huge fan of your work. What the fuck are you doing here? I'm here because I fucking failed at the old shit, dude. Okay? Because I failed. And I couldn't deal with the disappointment. And I couldn't deal with the failure. I couldn't deal anymore. At a certain point, I often wonder and I admire how people can have failure after failure after failure after failure after failure and somehow just like keep going. I don't know. I feel like I've reached a limit and I've noticed, you know, curiously that there's just a limit to how much failure and disappointment I can endure. And I think with this interesting kind of recent thing about people commenting that they're fans of my work and I've gotten some interesting messages about that and, you know, seeing other colleagues of ours going on and having really, really great success like you're talking about. I hear you, Wit. Like there's times when I'm like, did I give up too soon after, you know, 15 years of doing it. Maybe not. Maybe I'm just over it. Maybe the disappointment and the sadness, it got to be too much and I just couldn't handle it anymore. I don't know. But I do admire people that can seemingly get their fucking asses kicked over and over and over and over and over and over again by life and just keep getting up and keep going. I think I did that for a while and I think I just got sick of getting up. I was like, I just want to lay here for a while in my own bloody heap and not get up. Thank you. I don't want to get up anymore. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I'm mentally broken down. I don't want to get up. And with that aspect of my life and my career, I haven't. I haven't gotten back up. I don't know if I ever will. It is an interesting question about what makes one person more resilient than another. Is it that their heart is more deeply invested? Is it that they have a different why? Is it that maybe like this thing they've made so important that it doesn't matter how many setbacks. It doesn't matter how close they are to defeat. It doesn't matter if they go into bankruptcy. It doesn't matter if their relationships shatter. I mean, we've heard all kinds of interesting stories about people who, quote, made it and what they endured along the way. Sickness, bankruptcy, their relationships dissolving, divorces. I mean, there's a litany of things. Maybe it's that for me, my why wasn't important enough. It wasn't deep enough. It wasn't substantive enough. And that's why I was like, you know what? I'm done getting up. 
This is my last fight. I feel broken. I feel beaten. I'm done. Maybe that's because my why wasn't compelling enough. Maybe that's the X factor. I don't know. I mean, what do you think? Why do you think it is that certain people have this ability to just keep getting just the shit kicked out of them by life and just keep going? Do you think that's part of it? Like their why is just somehow more soulful and deep and more compelling than others? Or are there other factors? Well, analytically, there's likely other factors, but I do think that's a huge part of it. And I think this is actually one of the reasons that I feel compelled to keep going. I actually, even though on just a few nights ago, I was feeling so defeated, like, whoa, I really messed up. Wow, I was really off base. Maybe the reason that hurt so much, Jason, is because it went against my instincts. And that's really scary. When you're feeling really confident about something and it doesn't work out for you, that feeling of, oh shit, do I even know myself kind of hits. But now that I've come away from the shock of that rejection, I don't believe that's the case. I actually feel further fueled. I feel motivated to go find more evidence for what I did, not to like well, I guess I shouldn't say not to. There's definitely an element in me that wanted to prove myself. And I I was a little bit excited that I felt that way after my first presentation because I really wanted to prove myself for the second one. And it worked. Like I got the approval that I wanted, but it didn't feel very good. You know, like it was tainted. It would have felt much better the day before. <laughs> if the order had been reversed, it might have been a little bit easier for me. And yet perhaps it really worked to my advantage. But my point being that I found myself thinking, wait a second, are they right or am I right? And is it possible that we are both right at the same time? I think that's actually more likely. To your point, Jason, just because you do something quote right doesn't mean that people will agree that it's right. And that is actually in a very important place to land. It's kind of like when we're seeking approval and praise, as we've discussed on this episode and others, that desire to like go prove yourself, like when somebody rejects you, like many of us have experienced that, like dating wise, somebody turns us down or breaks up with us and people want to get the revenge body or they want to be super successful. Like if you were bullied in high school and you go to your high school reunion and you're the best looking out of everybody or you're the most successful out of everybody, like the ego is like really excited about that. It's a common human experience. But I also feel like it's a little bit empty. I remember for a while, I wanted to prove myself to this one teacher in high school that actually I found out really likes me, but just like, was frustrated with me in school, maybe because I had ADHD as we'll find out the answer to that soon. But I struggled in a lot of ways. And this is a teacher that like had a lot of tough love teaching styles. If there was love involved, there was a lot of criticism at the time was like, I want to prove myself to this person. I want to show them how great I am. When like the teacher doesn't really care that much. They're onto the other student, right? In most cases, maybe in some cases, they they care specifically about you and your success. But my point being, most of the time that I've experienced the desire to prove myself, it hasn't really mattered. Like you were saying too, Jason, like something can matter so much to you, but then you find out it doesn't really matter to them. 
So it's like a little bit of a waste of our time and energy, but that can fuel us. So I'm kind of curious, Jason, like when you're describing what you perceive to be failures, which I certainly do not, like from the outside, I don't think many people perceive you to be a failure. And I know that's hard, but like clearly you get a lot of praise. So oftentimes you get more praise on this podcast than I do. Like many people are here because of you. You are someone that naturally draws people in and might get some messages as a result of us discussing this, right? But if you don't feel it yourself, then it doesn't matter what other people think. So this is another example, right? Like the opposite can absolutely be true. Everyone can love you, but if you don't love yourself and feel that way about yourself, then it just does not matter what others think of you. And to go back to this question, um, I think that some of those experiences of perceived failure, screwing up, can be very motivating. And it was for me, Jason, because what happened as I processed it is I started thinking to myself, wait a minute, I was really confident about this. And I know myself, I trust myself enough to recognize that when I'm confident, that means that I'm on the right track for myself. And then I started looking back and reflecting on data. And I was listening to the Bored and Brilliant book. And that book in itself was bringing up examples of exactly what I was talking about and doing on stage in my presentation. And I realized through listening to that too, it is still a very early time. And it's still very uncommon for people to encourage us to get off our devices. Because our devices are relatively new. The iPhone came out, I think, in 2007. And that changed everything. I was there literally at the Apple store the day the iPhone came out for the very first time. And it has impacted my life in ways I never would have expected. For those that don't know, I worked at the Apple store and I will never forget the day that that phone came out. I'll never forget when I first got the phone. But none of us knew at the time how big of a deal that was. Not just us at the Apple store, but people in general. Like you got these phones and they seemed cool, but they were different. And none of us, including the people who made it, knew what it was going to mean for us, knew that we would walk around almost like zombies laptops, like all of this is so new. So my point is people that are encouraging not to use these devices or to minimize these devices, as we've talked about in multiple episodes, that's still a radical ask because percentage wise, I forget, I don't have the data right off the top of my head. There are so many people who are literally addicted to them. So asking someone who's addicted to stop doing something that makes them feel good is a big ask and it's confronting. But that in itself, Jason, comes back to my why is because I believe so deeply from my personal experiences and my research in encouraging people to work on their focus and their presence, their awareness, their mindfulness, their connection with one another because I am deeply invested in people's well-being. And that's what helps me through these times. Now, passing it back to you, Jason, do you think in this moment that you just weren't that deeply connected and rooted in being a chef 
for anyone who has heard your origin story, which I think you shared in the second episode that we did at this show, which, you know, we're going to link to all of this. We have many episodes we've referenced. If you have not already listened to them, we'll put them in the show notes at wellevator.com. And again, that's spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Jason's origin story, which correct me if I'm summarizing it in the wrong way, Jason, but I believe that you actually wanted to be a performer at the root. Like you've always loved performing. And this is why you thrive on stage and videos on the podcast. Like you thrive when you use your voice. People are drawn to that naturally. So when you say that you failed as a chef, my thought is like, maybe chefing is just not really part of your passion or your why. Your why is more rooted in being a performer. And I don't think you failed whatsoever in doing that. But because being a chef and a performer became so intertwined, perhaps you believed that you were a failure at both. When maybe you were never meant to be a chef, you were meant to just be a performer. I almost gave the finger on YouTube. I was like, <laughs> holding up two of my fingers. I almost did this. Not what I meant at all. What do you think of that, Jason? You know, chefing was a plan B. It wasn't plan A. I only became a chef because I liked making food. Food is a passion, okay? I don't think I'll ever stop being passionate about food as an art form, as a source of nourishment, a creative outlet. But I went to culinary school and became a chef because I didn't have the confidence at the time in my 20s that I was going to make a living as a performer. I was doing improv. I was singing in bands. I was doing those things. And I was like, I'm not making money at this. And how am I going to feed myself as an adult human in the world? So, you know, literally and figuratively to feed myself, <laughs> I decided to go to plan B, which was to be a chef. So to the point, being a chef was never plan A. It was never my original passion. And I still don't have the confidence to be a performer. I don't believe that I can make a living at it. I don't believe that I can. So I'm in this limbo state of not knowing what I'm doing, why I'm doing it. And I feel really lost right now, to be honest. I feel probably the most lost I've ever been in my entire life. And it's a really horrifying feeling. That's a lot at the end of the episode, but maybe we can use that as a touchstone for something else. But I feel incredibly lost right now. It's not an enjoyable experience to feel this lost right now. Well, one thing I do know is that oftentimes when you express these tough emotions, Jason, people really enjoy it. And this is part of your gift too. And as I said earlier, it's been found statistically that when you share your vulnerabilities and your hardships, it connects you to others. So I think you have a masterful ability and innate ability to connect and move people. And this is why they lean into you. And I know that doesn't necessarily, might not comfort you in this time that you're feeling lost, but you're here on the podcast right now. And I don't think this podcast is a failure. You're here opening your heart and sharing right now in this moment. So maybe, you know, part of your experience of feeling lost right now, Jason, is not 
alone because I'm here with you and the listeners here with you. And it's hard to know that you feel that way, but I'm also not concerned, Jason, because I know that you are stronger than you might even realize. My question is, are you comfortable in this moment continuing to record? And do you want to share any more of your feelings or would you prefer to rap? And what would you like to do in this moment? I just really don't have much else to say about it. So I think I'd like to take time for myself just to like be in this and process what I need to process. Well, thank you for being clear about that. And I think there's like a tendency to apologize, like, oh, I'm sorry this made you feel this way. Like, I do feel a bit of that. But, you know, I felt sad a few days ago and I got through it. I know you will too, Jason. And it's important to let it out. And there's no shame in it, if that's the right word. (laughs) But I'm glad that you set those boundaries. So I'm going to respect that and wrap up the show. And I just instinctually know from our listeners, our dedicated listeners, that they like it when you do this, Jason. They don't like you to hurt, but they like it when you share from your heart and they're open about it. And so it's that fine line between like, keep being upset, Jason, make our listeners happy. (laughs) He's laughing. If you're watching on YouTube, he's... I'm not laughing at him, (laughs) but you're in a safe space with me. And I know you're in a safe space on this podcast, Jason. And I'm grateful as your friend and as the podcast co-host that you shared that. And again, I really believe that to be one of your gifts. Is there anything else you'd like to say or should I wrap? He's nodding his head no. (laughs) Well, thank you to the listener. This has been a little bit of a roller coaster of an episode. And we thank you for coming along the journey with us. We thank you for holding space. And to tie into the subject matter today, Jason and I show up on this show truly because it's for us first and foremost. But as I've expressed throughout this episode, when I do something that I love and other people express that they enjoy it, it means the world. And if you would like to express any of that to us, we would love to hear it from you through emails, direct message on social media, reviews on iTunes, and comments on the blog post if you would like. And you can find links to how to do all of that at the very bottom of our show notes. So we've shared the website a few times, wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. If you click on the podcast section, you'll find this episode. And if you scroll the bottom of that page, which is a long transcript, there are links to every single resource that we've mentioned, as well as links to email us, to chat with us on platforms like Instagram, where you can DM us. And you can also reach out to us individually. So Jason has his Instagram and his email, which are a little harder to find. But if you ever want to reach Jason specifically, just write, hey, Jason, on Instagram or email. We both read it, by the way. Sometimes people do send messages directly to one of us, <laughs> which is fine. We both read it. Generally, it's me reading and then passing it on to Jason to read afterwards. So just keep that in mind. But you can reach out to Jason privately if you would like to respond and myself as well. We are here for you. We are fairly easy to get in touch with. <laughs> we love hearing from you and we are deeply grateful for you. And speaking of gratitude, I wanted to give a big shout out 
one of several, I imagine, to our latest patron supporter. Rye, R-Y, recently gave us a very generous financial contribution on Patreon. And it made our day. Now, it's not just about money. It's about the energetics of that. But the money is amazing because that supports our latest endeavor, This Hits the Spot, which is a private podcast we created for our newsletter subscribers and our patron supporters. And there are costs involved. And Rise Contribution is paying for a huge percentage of our costs, which is like awesome. So thank you, Rye. Thank you to our other amazing contributors on there. We've got Nadine, April, Nazneen, and Diane, who's been a Diane has been a very long-term supporter of us on Patreon. And it's just remarkable. Literally every dollar makes us smile. Every dollar helps us with the expenses involved with this podcast and this hits the spot. And we created this hits the spot to give back to people that are part of our community on Patreon and our newsletter. If you are in a place right now where you don't have the funds to contribute, you can still listen to this Hits the Spot, our short private podcast through signing up for our newsletter. And that's also on wellevator.com. You actually get to download a free ebook, watch a free video, and you also get to hear this Hits the Spot. All of them are there. And we've linked to this Hits the Spot in the show notes. So we try to make it as easy as possible. We're trying to give you even more beyond this show because we truly care and we're invested in your well-being. Thank you so much for listening. We can't wait to hear from you. We'll be back with another episode in just a few days and sending you lots of love until then. Bye. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.